0: Every year, stress-related illnesses kill 120,000 Americans and generate $190 billion in healthcare costs. Americans are stressed out people because we have issues in our marriages or our parenting or at work or with our finances or with our health. We watch the news and that stresses us out. We have other things that stress us out. And as we grapple with these stresses, we don't get much time off. On average, Americans get two weeks of paid vacation per year, and one in four Americans don't even take that much vacation. And apart from vacation, each night, more than 35% of Americans do not get the recommended amount of sleep. Friends, I would guess that we are overstressed and underrested. Many, if not most of us, regularly feel worn out heavily burdened and overworked. And I would say that's true if you're working in an office or if you're doing housework or even if you're retired because there's always a lot to do in this life, right? And so we need rest. And the truth is we're not very good at taking time to get it. And it is this subject of rest that we're gonna to discuss today as we continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're gonna to be in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through chapter 12, verse 14. You've got a Bible turn there. And what we're going to see today is that rest becomes a significant issue in the life of Jesus. We're going to see in one way that it's significant is Jesus invites people to find the rest that they so desperately need in him. But rest also proves significant in Jesus' life because issues about rest are going to lead to intense controversy between Jesus and the religious elites of his day. Controversy that we're going to see becomes the occasion for Jesus' enemies to begin plotting his death. And so today we're going to see some of what the Bible has to say about rest. And as we do today, we're going to look at three points. First, we're going to look at the idea of rest found in the Old Testament law concerning the Sabbath. Second, we're going to see that Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. And third, we're going to see that Jesus offers us true rest by inviting us to trust in him. So let's start with our first point, examining the Old Testament law concerning the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath finds its origin at the very beginning of our universe. Genesis 1, we learn that God created everything in six days. And having done so, Genesis 2 says... On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So God finished his creation, and then we're told he rested. Now the idea here is not that God was exhausted from his labor and needed a breather. The Hebrew word translated rest here just means that he stopped. He ceased his creative work. On the seventh day, no labor was done. And this week of creation becomes a pattern that God would later apply to his Old Testament people, Israel. Because when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the foundation of the law that Israel was to live by, God said in Exodus 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates Four in six days. The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So when God formed the universe and he worked on each day, remember this, God pronounced each day good, right? But on the seventh day, when God rested, he did not pronounce that good. Instead, God blessed that day and he called it holy a day that was set apart, that was consecrated for the Lord. And God said to Israel, likewise, the seventh day of every week was for them to be a holy day, a day of consecrated rest, involving the cessation of all work. Now, this is a big deal. Because back in Genesis 2, we learned humanity was created to work. And the ancient Israelites definitely worked, especially when they got to the Promised Land. They labored in warfare in agriculture, in commerce, in construction. They worked hard. But because of this law of the Sabbath, each seventh day, which in the Israelite way of reckoning meant beginning each Friday evening and going through the afternoon on Saturday, there was to be no work done. Now, this was a kindness of God to mandate rest for his people. And we live in a time in which there are a lot of perks to working in our world, right? But back then, you didn't get paid benefits, you didn't have labor unions, you didn't have eight-hour workdays or every other Friday off. People in most cultures back then were at the mercy of their employers or their masters. Slaves were on the clock 24-7, and employees didn't have it much better, and those could afford employees or slaves thought, well, if my employee or slave dies from overwork, who cares? I can always get another one. But friends, God doesn't think like that, because God is compassionate to his people, and God knows that we are frail, and we often need rest. So God said, my people, from the greatest to the least, is entitled to one day of rest per week, allowing God's people to reflect God, who rested after his labors in creation. But not only did the Sabbath reflect creation, the Sabbath also was a remembrance of things past. Deuteronomy 5.15, God says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. In times past, Israel had no rest. They were slaves. But God delivered them from slavery, and the Sabbath was also a commemoration of that. So once per week, Israel was to enjoy not being enslaved by abstaining from work, by resting. And this requirement to rest from work was not optional. Exodus 31.13 says, You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Because to violate the Sabbath was to violate the Mosaic Covenant. And God says that merits death. So on the Sabbath, you could not carry a burden, according to Jeremiah 17. You could not plow or harvest your fields, according to Exodus 34. You could not even pick up some sticks to make a fire. A guy found that out the hard way in Numbers 15, and he was stoned to death. The Sabbath was a day of absolute rest. But over time, Israel strayed from God. They strayed after idols. They strayed into disobedience, and God's law was abandoned, and so was the Sabbath. Israel profaned the Sabbath regularly, along with the rest of God's calendar. And the prophets warned where this would lead. Jeremiah seventeen twenty-seven. God said, if you do not listen to me, to keep the Sabbath day holy, I will kindle a fire, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. But despite these kinds of warnings, the people were hard-hearted. They would not listen to God, and so they went into exile and back into slavery. But eventually God faithfully regathered Israel and he brought them back to the promised land. And yet within just a few years of returning, they were profaning the Sabbath again. One of the last chapters of the Old Testament, chronologically speaking, is Nehemiah 13. In which Nehemiah discovers Israelites on the Sabbath treading grapes to make wine and moving around large quantities of produce and buying and selling. They still hadn't learned their lesson. So Nehemiah beats some of them up to set them straight. But this constant temptation to profane the Sabbath led conservative Jewish religious leaders to try to figure out, how can we stop falling into this temptation? How can we stop breaking the Sabbath? They wanted to stop the, the continuation of these sins. They wanted to avert more punishment. And so what they did was they developed their own complex law about what was allowed on the Sabbath. They thought, if you keep our law, we'll definitely make sure you don't break God's law. So they said, you could only walk five-eighths of a mile on the Sabbath, or else you were guilty. They came up with a list of 39 acts that were forbidden on the Sabbath. Sowing grain, plowing, reaping, binding, threshing, winnowing, cleansing, grinding, sifting, kneading, or baking grain. Shearing wool, washing, beating, dyeing, spinning, or weaving it. Making loops, weaving together two threads, tying or untying a knot, sewing or tearing stitches, hunting, killing, skinning, salting, curing, or carving deer, writing two letters or erasing something so that you could write two letters, building, hammering, demolishing, kindling or extinguishing a fire, carrying a load, any of these things made you guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And not only was the average Jew supposed to remember this list and a lot of other rules, but the leaders who made this law up, who became the Pharisees, watched the people closely to make sure that no one violated these rules. More than this, the Pharisees said observing the Sabbath was the most important religious duty. Now, the Old Testament said the Sabbath was important, but the Pharisees went further. They said this keeping this law outweighed every other personal or religious duty, such that when enemies attacked Jews on the Sabbath, the Jews believed they could not fight in self-defense and submitted to slaughter to honor the Sabbath, thanks to the Pharisees. So what God had instituted as a day of rest for the good of people became a highly regulated event that was meticulously policed by religious elites trying to restrict people. And this is the situation in Jesus' day, which leads to the controversy that we see now in our second point, which is that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. All right, so now we're in Matthew chapter 12, and let me set the stage. Since the middle of chapter 4, Jesus has traveled through the towns of Galilee preaching what Matthew calls the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This world has been rebelling against God's rule since the beginning of history, but now God has begun to decisively act to assert his dominion over this world by sending the Messiah, the long-promised king, who will bring about God's purposes for blessing and judgment. And that king is Jesus. Jesus has come, so the kingdom has begun. And the right response to the coming of God's king and kingdom is that people must repent. We must turn from our lives of selfish rebellion against God's rule and turn in faith to Jesus. That is Jesus' message. And to prove this message to be authentic, Jesus has performed some amazing miracles. The kinds of miracles the Old Testament said would come when the Messiah's kingdom came. And these miracles astonished the common people. The people loved the miracles. They saw the sickest folks healed. They saw the dead raised. Many of them personally benefited from the miracles. So they loved Jesus the miracle worker. But Matthew 11.20 tells us they did not repent. Outside of the small group of Jesus' disciples, the rest of the folks who encountered Jesus wanted the miracles, but they were not interested in his message. They wanted his benefits, but they rejected his demands and his lordship, and that meant they rejected him. Now, a large part of the reason that the common people rejected Jesus is that they followed the elites of their day, especially the religious elites, like the Pharisees. And we've seen in this book that the Pharisees opposed Jesus. They opposed him first back in chapter 9 when Jesus claimed to forgive sins. And they said to themselves, well, only God can forgive sins. So if Jesus says he does what only God can do, Jesus must be blaspheming. And they continued to hold that view even after Jesus proved that he could forgive sins by healing a paralyzed man. Proving the invisible miracle by performing a seemingly impossible visible miracle. But unmoved? The Pharisees again opposed Jesus in chapter 9. When they saw him feasting with people that they disliked, tax collectors and sinners. Pharisees would never be caught dead eating with people like that. But Jesus ate with them to call them to repentance. But because Jesus will not submit to their false authority or their man-made rules, because Jesus repeatedly called them hypocrites, false religious workers with a pretended righteousness, the Pharisees hate Jesus, and they will not acknowledge him as the Messiah, even though the miracles proved that Jesus was the long-promised king. So at the end of chapter 9, When the common people are most enraptured with Jesus' miracles, we read that the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. The Pharisees can't disprove Jesus' miracles, but they won't believe. And so to try to malign Jesus and protect themselves, they invent an outrageous blasphemy, we'll talk about more next week, in which they falsely claim Jesus' powers don't come from God, but from Satan. So the elites rejected Jesus, and the common people did too. And that's where we left off last time near the end of chapter 11. I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 12 now, and then we'll come back to the end of 11 in a few minutes. But we begin now in Matthew 12, and we find here two controversies that are going to arise between Jesus and the Pharisees about the Sabbath. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So it's the Sabbath, and Jesus and his disciples are somewhere in Galilee, and they're walking through a grain field. This was probably a short walk, because the Pharisees don't accuse Jesus of walking too far on the Sabbath. So this is probably a short walk. But while taking this walk, Jesus' disciples are hungry. Maybe they've just left a town that rejected their message or refused to give them hospitality. So as they walk through the grain, the hungry disciples pull some heads off the nearby crops and eat them. Not a big deal, we might think. But the Pharisees are lurking nearby. And when they see this, they think, this is an opportunity to get Jesus. Why? Well, Exodus 34 says, you could not harvest your crops on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees' rule said reaping was one of the things you could not do on the Sabbath. So when they saw Jesus' picking, disciples picking grain to eat, they said, that is reaping, it's the Sabbath, it's forbidden. Now, before we see how Jesus answers this, I want to point out a few things. It is true that the Bible forbids harvesting crops on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were probably right that God meant to disallow reaping on the Sabbath for this reason although that was never specified in the Bible. But what Jesus' disciples are doing here is not reaping. For those of us who don't know much about farming, reaping is when you take a sickle to cut down your plants in your field so you can turn them into usable grain. Well, here, the disciples don't own these fields. They aren't cutting down any plants, and they aren't trying to turn these plants into an agricultural commodity. This is not reaping. In fact, the Bible explicitly distinguishes between what the disciples are doing here and reaping in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, which says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Putting a sickle to the grain would be reaping, and you don't reap someone else's field because that's theft. But if you were walking through their field, you could pluck their grain and eat it. That was permitted Now, the Pharisees could say, well, the Bible doesn't say you can do that on a Sabbath. And that's true. The Bible never specifies if that's permitted on the Sabbath or not. But from what the Bible does say, we know the disciples are doing something that is generally allowed. And the Pharisees are complaining about something that is not explicitly forbidden. And more than that, they are desperately stretching to try to make the disciples' conduct fit into their own man-made prohibition so that they can vindictively and disingenuously malign Jesus So on the balance here, the disciples are on much better ground than the Pharisees to begin with. But Jesus doesn't go down this line of reasoning. Because to do so would be to bicker with the Pharisees about their own made-up rules. And Jesus doesn't want to dignify those rules. Because to do so would be to concede that the Pharisees have the authority to regulate people's behavior on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees are not the authoritative interpreters of the Old Testament. Jesus is... Because as Jesus has said throughout this book, the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets point to him. He is their fulfillment and culmination. So only he can authoritatively say what the Old Testament is really about, not the Pharisees. And from this posture of authority, Jesus now responds to the Pharisees' charge. And he makes three arguments, all of which come from the scriptures, which show that the Pharisees' complaint and more broadly their position about the Sabbath was all wrong. And that Jesus and his disciples are innocent. First, look at verse three. Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Jesus first points to First Samuel twenty one, when King David was on the run from his enemies and he came to the tabernacle, the place where God was worshipped at the time. David came to the tabernacle, and he asked the high priest for bread, because David was hungry, and he had some soldiers nearby who needed to eat as well. And to get this bread, David actually lies to the high priest, or at least tells a half-truth. But the high priest doesn't actually have any regular bread. Yet he had something else. Inside the tabernacle, there were a number of objects with profound religious symbolism. And one of these objects was a table that during the week displayed the bread of the presence, 12 large loaves of bread that were holy to the Lord. And every Sabbath, these 12 loaves of bread would be taken off the table and replaced with new bread. And the old loaves would be eaten, but only by the priests, according to Leviticus 24.9. Now, 1 Samuel 21, 6 says there was no bread at the tabernacle, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. This seems to indicate David has come to the tabernacle on the Sabbath. So the last week's bread is being replaced. And the high priest gave David five of the old loaves of this holy bread. And David and his men, who are not priests, ate it. Now this is contrary to God's law. But the scriptures never condemned David or his men for doing this. Why not? Because David was God's appointed king. In David was the kingdom God intended to establish, which was being vigorously and sinfully opposed. And David and his men had a real need. Their lives were in danger, not just by their enemies, but also by their hunger. And under such circumstances, with such stakes, there is something more important than the exact observance of every point of ceremonial technicality. The preservation of God's kingdom and God's king and his men outweigh ceremonial considerations. Now here's Jesus, centuries later. David's long-promised descendant, who's greater than David, who will establish a greater kingdom than David ever had, a kingdom that will have no end. And Jesus... Entourage is hungry on the Sabbath, and they pluck some grain. Now, if David was legitimately able to do what ordinarily should not have been done, eating the holy bread on the Sabbath because he is the king, acting to preserve his kingdom, if that's okay, how much more can Jesus, the greater king, permit his disciples to do something that was normally permitted, eating grain in a field, on the Sabbath in furtherance of his kingdom? I think that's the reasoning here. If what David did was okay, then what Jesus did is clearly okay. And that's Jesus' first argument. We find the second argument in verse 5. Jesus says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? The law forbade Israelites from working on the Sabbath. But every Sabbath, the priests who worked in the temple had to change out the 12 pieces of holy bread. According to Numbers 28, every Sabbath they had to offer two burnt offerings. So if people were not to work on the Sabbath, why were the priests working? And the answer is, contrary to what the Pharisees taught, the Sabbath is not ultimate. By God's own decree, the worship of God is more important than Sabbath observance. The needs of the temple outweigh the rules of the Sabbath. But now Jesus says in verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Now, this is a startling statement, because in the Old Testament, the temple is the center of the worship of God. At the temple, God uniquely manifested His presence on earth. At the temple, people met with God. At the temple, people addressed their sins by bringing sacrifices offered through the priests. The temple was the unique holy place where heaven met earth in the old system. But now Jesus says something better than the temple is here, and he's talking about himself. And we know that, because in John 2, Jesus says that his own body is the temple. Might say, well, that's really weird. What does that mean? Well, upon closer examination, we can see why Jesus would talk about his body being the temple. Because what is true in the Old Testament about the building of the temple is now true about the person of Jesus. In the Old Testament, God uniquely manifested his presence on earth at the te- at the temple. But John 1 says, "The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory." Now this word dwelt is a translation of a Greek word that means tabernacle. John is saying that just like in the Old Testament when God dwelt on earth in this building or the tent uh, now jesus is the the place where god has dwelt among his people colossians 1 says in jesus all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell moreover in the old testament people met with god only at the temple but now jesus can say i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me or as we saw last week jesus said in matthew 11:27 No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. We now meet with God only in Jesus. In the Old Testament, people found atonement for their sins through animal sacrifices, but now we find atonement through the greater, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews 1 says, or 1 Peter 1 says, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish. Hebrews 9 says, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were offered through the Levitical priests. But now we have a better priest in Jesus. Hebrews 7 says Jesus is better because he has an indestructible life because he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. And Jesus is without sin, unlike the Levitical priests. And this superior priest, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So all of this shows us Jesus is the new and better temple. He performs every function the old temple performed, but in a greater and more accessible and final way. And if the temple's importance allowed for technical Sabbath breaking, if it allowed for work, and if Jesus is greater than the temple, then Jesus has the authority to let his disciples do what otherwise could not be done on the Sabbath. But now Jesus makes a third argument, verse 7. He says, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Here Jesus quotes from Hosea 6. Now this verse often trips people up. Because when they read it, they think Jesus is saying, Well, God didn't really care about that stuff he said in the Old Testament about sacrifice. And then they start thinking, Well, Maybe that means God doesn't really care about any of the commands he gives us in the Bible. And that what really matters is, as the Beatles said, all you need is love. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Yes, God cared about sacrifice. Jesus just said the priests were allowed to do what otherwise could not be done on the Sabbath because God wanted those sacrifices offered. Jesus isn't saying sacrifice is irrelevant. What Jesus is saying becomes clear if you actually read the passage Jesus quotes from Hosea, because in that passage, Hosea talks about people who pretend to be righteous, who say with their lips, come, let us return to the Lord, but who actually, God says, transgress the covenant and deal faithlessly with me. People who put on a show of obedience, but whose hearts are disobedient. And that the fact that they have false hearts is evident because they don't have compassion on people. And here Jesus quotes this because it just applies so well to the Pharisees. Because they are these kinds of hypocrites. They make a show of pretending to care about the Sabbath and caring about God. But they don't care. Because if they cared about God, they'd care about people made in God's image. They'd have mercy on hungry folks like the disciples. Instead of trying to figure out how they can entrap them into guilt. If they cared about God, they'd love his son. Instead of trying to play this ridiculous game of gotcha with him, the Pharisees' conduct shows that they are insincere hypocrites who don't know God. And so Jesus says it's the Pharisees who are guilty, not his disciples. And Jesus concludes this dispute by making an amazing declaration. Verse 8 For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees had these made up rules. About how people should behave on the Sabbath. But Jesus rejects their false authority because they have shown they don't represent God through their hypocrisy and because their doctrines about the Sabbath were not consistent with the scriptures. The Sabbath is not ultimate. What is more important is the worship of God, the kingdom of God, the Messiah of God, and the good and the needs of people. And so the Pharisees do not have legitimate authority. Instead, it's Jesus who has authority over the Sabbath, because he is greater than David. He is greater than the temple. He is the one to whom the whole Old Testament points and every institution within it. And so Jesus' interpretation of the Sabbath is ultimate, and Jesus determines that this picking of grain is not sinful. Now, this is the third time the Pharisees have tried to discredit Jesus, or maybe the fourth, depending on how we count. And yet again, they are the ones who get discredited. And as Jesus exposed them, As they heard Jesus magnify himself in ways that would have shocked them, they would have believed he was blaspheming again. Jesus is greater than David. Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. But you know, instead of being outraged, what they should have done is ponder these claims in the context of Jesus' amazing power. But instead, they hardened their hearts against Jesus. And as they did so, the Father confirmed them in judgment by further hardening their hearts as Jesus said in chapter 11, verse 25, the Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And the Father was pleased to allow the Pharisees to remain blind to the truth about Jesus. But the Pharisees now try to undermine Jesus again. Look at verse 9. Jesus went on from there and entered their synagogue. And the man was there with a the withered hand. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Alright, so we're in a new setting. We're in the synagogue. And in this synagogue, there is a disabled man with a deformed hand. And again, the Pharisees are present. And they point this guy out to Jesus and they say, What about him? Is it okay if you heal him on the Sabbath? And Matthew tells us this was a trap. And the trap worked like this. If Jesus said, No, it's not permissible to heal on the Sabbath, then the Pharisees could say to Jesus, You don't care about people. And more than that, The Pharisees made up rules, said it was okay to heal the sick on the Sabbath through the practice of medicine. So they could say, you're denying the Sabbath. But if Jesus said, yes, it's permissible to heal on the Sabbath, then the Pharisees could say, well, it's only okay to heal through medicine, not miracles. And Jesus is teaching against the Sabbath. So either way Jesus answers, they think they can discredit him. But Jesus is not unaware of their scheme. And he demonstrates here a great truth that we should all learn which is the best way to deal with a manipulative person that likes to play games, is to refuse to play their game. So Jesus doesn't answer their question. Instead, he poses his own. Verse 11, he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? The law didn't really speak to this question, but common sense did. Jesus says if you had a sheep that fell into a pit, you would rescue it, right? None of the Pharisees deny this because rescuing the sheep is obviously something everybody would have done even in first century Israel. Because the Pharisees don't argue this, now Jesus has them where he wants them. Verse 12, how much more value is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. If you could help a sheep on the Sabbath, certainly you could help a person because God values people a lot more than animals. So, yes, healing is permissible on the Sabbath because doing good to people is permissible on the Sabbath. Verse 13 Then Jesus said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and was restored, healthy like the other hand. Jesus heals him. And not only does Jesus demonstrate compassion in this, which we know God values from verse 7. But this miracle confirms Jesus' teaching. If Jesus was wrong in what he's saying here, the Father would not stand behind his miracle confirming his teaching. But the miracle happens. The Father affirms what the Son has said. And again, this confirms Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. Doing good is permissible on the Sabbath. Does this make the Pharisees rethink their position? Are their hearts now more open to Jesus? No. Instead, they reach a new level of hate. Look at verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How to destroy him? They begin to plot Jesus' death, putting into motion the plans that will terminate in the crucifixion, a plan of immense wickedness, a plan of murder. And yet their murderous plan will be turned by the Father into the means of saving his people. Now, what I want us to see here is the Pharisees saw the Sabbath as a means of power. That's why they considered it ultimate in their religion, because it was a tool they could manipulate with their rules and their enforcement to benefit people they liked and to stick it to people they didn't. So they perverted God's good gift of rest into an institution of oppression. But Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, who has the authority to speak for God, will not stand for this. Yes, Jesus kept the Sabbath, but he saw the Sabbath as God intended it, as a sacred time for people's good. As Jesus famously said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not just some ceremony God really wanted people to keep for its own sake. It was to benefit people. And as such, it was one of many good things in God's law. But it was not ultimate, as the Pharisees said. Certain matters take precedence over it, like helping someone, or furthering the needs of the kingdom, or worshiping God. And when these better priorities are at stake, Jesus said the Sabbath must give way. So Jesus sees and declares God's purpose behind this command, and Jesus resists attempts by hypocritical and false religious leaders to leverage God's word in a way contrary to God's intention. And this is important, friends, because we live in an era of crisis in the American church in which there is a lot of abusive church leadership. When there are a lot of people who want to lord power over God's flock and want to use God's word not to help the people they have authority for, but to manipulate them and oppress them like the Pharisees are doing here, to silence legitimate questions, to concentrate authority and empower themselves. And friends, we need to know that Jesus opposes that kind of false leadership. And instead, Jesus takes the Sabbath within the context of all of God's word, and doing so, he exposes the Pharisees as false, and he produces good for God's people. Now, all of this brings us to our last point. We spent a ton of time today talking about Jewish law and debates about Jewish law, but what should we here take from today's passage? Let me start with what we should not take from today's passage, which is the very popular but mistaken notion that the Old Testament Sabbath corresponds to how Christians behave on Sundays. While this is a common application drawn from Sabbath texts, I don't think it's correct for the following five reasons. Number one, Sunday is not the Sabbath. Israel's Sabbath began on Friday and ended on Saturday, it was not Sunday. So if we believe for some reason that Sunday is the Sabbath, we should expect that somewhere God would articulate that change. But we never find that in the New Testament. Second, the Bible never describes Christian Sunday worship as Sabbath. There's great evidence that the earliest Christians congregated for worship on Sundays, reflecting Jesus' resurrection from the dead on a Sunday morning. Acts 20, verse 7, mentions the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Speaking of Christians gathering on Sunday. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, speaks of believers contributing to a collection regularly taken on the first day of the week, which would presuppose Christians getting together then. But these references to Sunday gatherings are never described using the language of Sabbath or even as periods of rest. Third. The Bible never applies the Old Testament Sabbath law to Christians. Of the original Ten Commandments, nine are restated explicitly in the New Testament. The only one which is not is the Sabbath command, which I think is a really significant problem for people who want to maintain that Christians are bound to a Sabbath command akin to what Israel had. Nowhere do we find language in the New Testament imposing something akin to Sabbath rest on church-age believers. Fourth, What the New Testament does say about Sabbath suggests that the observance of the Sabbath has become a matter of personal choice rather than religious duty. The only place in the letters of Paul that we find any reference to the Sabbath is Colossians 2.16, which says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Sabbath observance, as well as the observance of other Jewish festivals or dietary restrictions, are no longer obligatory upon believers. Paul says these are not matters for believers to judge one another about, which if you read 1 Corinthians 5 means this is not a sin issue. We find a similar idea in Romans 14:5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. How people observe or don't observe the Jewish Sabbath or any other day or holiday is a matter for personal conscience, not obligation. And this is exactly what the earliest Christians did. One author summarizes the available evidence from the second century. There were Jewish Christians who continued to keep the Sabbath as a matter of national norms, but laid no such obligation on Gentile converts. There were Gentile Christians who adopted the the observance of the Jewish Sabbath, while other Gentiles regarded themselves as entirely free from the commandment. Basically, this is the range of outcomes we should expect if we understand Paul's writings on this subject in the way I'm saying we should. In fact, the earliest people to claim that Sunday was the Christian Sabbath were not the New Testament writers or even Orthodox theologians of the early centuries. They were the allegorists Clement of Alexandria and Origen who held to a false interpretation of the scriptures that spawned all manner of doctrinal errors? Who said that the church is now Israel, that Israel's rite of circumcision mandates infant baptism, and that the Sabbath is uh, the new Sabbath is Sunday? So the arguments tying the Sabbath to Christian behaviors on Sunday are based on a very flawed foundation and entirely lack biblical warrant. And that is because, fifth, The scripture tells us the fulfillment of the Sabbath is not Sunday, it's Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says explicitly in Colossians, right after he says, don't judge yourselves about how you keep the Sabbath. Colossians 2.17, he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Sabbath points to Christ, not Sunday. This shouldn't surprise us. Because in chapter 11 Jesus said all the prophets and law prophesied and I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill them. The law and prophets explicitly anticipated the coming of Jesus. They also contained institutions that implicitly predicted the coming of Jesus like the temple and the Sabbath. And now Jesus has come and these prophecies stand fulfilled. So the ancient law of Israel has no ongoing continuing legal force. And that doesn't mean we get to live however we want. We must obey the commands found in the New Testament. But we are not bound to the ancient law because we are not ancient Israelites. And because that law stands fulfilled in Christ. Now, does this mean then that we can or should work ourselves to death and never take any time for rest? No. Ephesians 5.1 says be imitators of God. And God worked and God rested. I think there's a principle there that we should value rest. The laws of the Sabbath point to timeless principles that we should consecrate time for God in our lives, that we should not live as slaves bound 24-7 to our labor, that we should make time to enjoy ourselves and our families. But friends, if we do that on Friday night or Sunday or Thursday at 2 p.m., it doesn't make any difference. Because while we should observe a principle of rest, we are not bound to any particular form or command in this area. Now, let's talk about where the Sabbath ultimately points, which is this. We can find true rest only in Christ. And Jesus says this very thing right before the passage we've just been looking at. Look back at the end of chapter 11. Jesus has just called out the various cities of Galilee, who should have believed in him because they had seen his miracles, but who hardened their hearts towards him. And Jesus has just explained that their rejection is due to the doctrine of election. The Father hides and reveals spiritual truths to whom he will. Matthew eleven twenty seven 27, that no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. But while election is true, while people ultimately respond to Jesus in faith only as a result of the choice of the Father and the Son, Look what Jesus says next, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Truth of election doesn't make evangelism and faith irrelevant. Jesus teaches election and immediately offers an invitation to believe. Because God's elective purposes come to pass in our world through the proclamation of the gospel. And because how we respond to Jesus' invitation is the outworking and the evidence of God's elective purposes for our lives. But Jesus calls out to the unbelieving people of his generation. Just as he calls out across the ages as he calls to us today. Are you laboring? Are you burdened? The people of Jesus' day were laboring and burdened. Because the religious leaders of their day had made up these rules which they enslaved the people with to the point that God's good gift of rest has become an oppression and a burden. Maybe today, friends, we labor and are burdened because of the difficulties of this life. Maybe finances are tight. Maybe we hate our jobs. Maybe we have turmoil at home. Maybe we're burdened because of the weight of our sin, that we have failed to do what God wants us to do, and we have done what God has told us not to do. Maybe we feel the weight of our sin, and it is giving us crushing guilt because we know we deserve judgment. Perhaps we feel distant from God, isolated, stagnant, and hopeless. Perhaps we are enslaved to other people's expectations. Maybe we labor. Maybe we're just burned out doing all the things we have to do. Maybe like the people of Jesus' day, we think, if we just work harder, maybe God will finally be pleased with me. Maybe we're tired because we want to please other people all the time. Friends, are you tired? Are you burdened? If so, Jesus says, come to me. If you're an unbeliever, today respond to Jesus' invitation. The kingdom has come. Turn from your sins. Turn from your labors. Give your labors to Christ. Trust Christ and you will find rest for your soul. If you are a believer today, respond again to Jesus' invitation. Go back to Christ and give him your burdens. Cast your cares upon Jesus because he cares for you. And he promises he will give anyone who comes to him true rest. He's not like the Pharisees. Pharisees didn't care about people. Jesus is Lord, but he is gentle and humble and kind. And he says, come to me and learn from me. He wants us to become his disciples. He wants us to hear his teaching and obey it because his word is truly good for us. And yes, he wants our service. And make no mistake, his service is demanding. have seen in this book, he says, it's like taking your cross and following him down the hard, narrow road of discipleship. Chapter 5, Jesus says the standard of righteousness that he requires is actually more rigorous than the law. The law said don't murder. Jesus says don't be sinfully angry. The law says don't commit adultery. Jesus says don't even lust. And yet, the rigor that Jesus calls us to is not a yoke of misery. It is not a burden of oppression. Because to walk with Jesus down the hard road gives us peace and hope. Because his love and his fellowship sustains us. Because his intercession is effective for us. Because his spirit is alive in us. And because as we face the difficulties of this life, he will never leave us or forsake us. And so because of our connection to Jesus, the yoke that he offers is easy. And his burden is light because he walks alongside us and he empowers us and he helps us face this life. And so we can trust him and we can walk after him in faith with peace and confidence. Friends, there is a rest available to us now. And beyond that, there is a promise of eternal rest. Hebrews 4 says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Speaking about the rest that awaits us in eternity, not an endless slumber, but a glorious, unending Sabbath day awaits when we won't be laboring anymore, when we will have fellowship with one another in the glories of the new creation in the very presence of Jesus himself, worshiping forever and ever, the most amazing and wondrous experience, surpassing anything we could ever imagine. Friends, this is the grace Jesus offers us, help and rest for today, and hope and rest forevermore. And so I want to end today with the appeal made by the author of Hebrews as he discusses this rest. Hebrews 4, 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If today you know you need rest from Jesus, if you need to be unburdened from false philosophies, from false religious systems of work, if you need to rest from trying to always please people or just from the mindless, soul-crushing busyness of your life, if today you need peace because you labor under a burden of sin, do not harden your heart. Don't be like the Pharisees. They heard Jesus. They knew who Jesus was. And they said, I hate you, Jesus, because you tell me the truth. Don't be like the common people who say, I want those benefits, Jesus, but I don't want you. No, friends, turn to Jesus. Entrust yourself to him, because he died for your sins and he rose again. Become his disciple and his servant, and you will find true rest for your soul. For as Hebrews 4.10 says, Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his